Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Kamala Harris has been pegged to be Joe Biden's Democratic running mate in the U.S. presidential election. How will that change the campaign? Russia claims it has a vaccine for COVID-19. However, it really hasn't been tested to the extreme that every other researcher is using. And the Canada-China Relations Committee began hearings on Canada's relationship and policy with China moving forward. Will the government listen to the people and be more cautious of the Chinese Communist Party? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Excuse me, I'm still a little foggy after watching five overtime periods of hockey last night. Or was it afternoon? Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! Some pretty significant history made in the United States yesterday when Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden announced his running mate, who would be his VP if, in fact, he does go on to win the presidency, and that is Kamala Harris. Officially now, Joe Biden's running mate for the 2020 election and certainly more than well qualified for the job from what we hear, uh, including, including a rousing uh, endorsement from former President Barack Obama. Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. He is with us now. Elliot, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. And uh, Good afternoon, Scott. So your thoughts on uh, this ticket. Uh, this certainly is a lot more unifying ticket than the Trump-Pence ticket. Well, we... Uh... We had a uh, situation where no one person could fit all the various roles necessary for the party. A choice had to be made. The choice that was made was to meet the moment. That is, this is a moment when racial justice is front and center in American life, and when there was intense pressure to respond to that by appointing a a woman of color. Now, keep in mind that the fact that we have a woman on the ticket was a pledge made before unilaterally uh, by uh, certainly by then uh, the the candidate Joe Biden. Uh, All other things being equal, had he not made that pledge, it might well have been a man, might have been, say, uh, the senator from Ohio, who Jared, uh, uh, the fellow there who uh, has such close touch to the working class in Ohio, etc. But the, the choice was made to have a woman. The choice that was made for the woman was uh, Kamala Harris, a person, as you pointed out, who not only identifies as black, but uh, who also has an Asian heritage. Uh, her parents were of uh, immigrants. Uh, she's a child of immigration, and she, her father was from Jamaica. Her mother was from Chennai or Madras. So we have a truly historic front, uh, first choice uh, on the ticket. However, the other choices that were available was, well, we... We're not going to gain any electoral votes with this because she's from California, <laughs> and they're going to vote for Biden. Right. Uh, another approach, a different approach, would be to take somebody that could add electoral heft. Uh, that would be, say, Gretchen Whitmer from Michigan, who not only could help carry that key state, but some of the other Midwestern states that Trump took away from the Democrats. Another possibility was to unite the party taking uh, a progressive on the ticket. Uh, because the progressives have been cleaning up in the primaries, Scott. They're really doing very well over more establishment and well-established 
Democratic office holders. So that would have pushed it to Elizabeth Warren. So Sherrod Brown didn't get it because he's a male and so forth. The choice came down to, well, we, we have, and also, by the way, there was a Latino, a Latino uh, governor on the short list as well, the long short list, I guess. And outreach to that community, a growing community in key states, uh, could have also been reflected by the choice. The choice was made to have somebody who was vetted already by having run for president, importantly, who was close to uh, the Biden's son, Bo. And that, I think, weighed heavily into the choice because his, uh, his death by cancer was yet another terrible blow to the Biden family. So all of those things uh, came together uh, with intense pressure from the black community to make Kamala Harris a, 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 um, an effective politician, as we've seen, to go on the ticket. So, Elliot, uh, how what, what is this campaign going to look like now? We've seen Donald Trump uh, obviously already call her nasty. Um, uh, you know, again, why even bother examining that, I guess? Uh, same term that he used uh, for Hillary Clinton. What is this campaign going to look like? Down and dirty uh, from the Republican side in more than one way. One way to view this, uh, this particular appointment of Kamala Harris is this is base consolidation for the Democrats. The, the backbone of the party, as everybody's now pointing out, have been black women for a long time. And a lot of the commentary about they'd better now put somebody on the ticket like Kamala Harris was that, you know, we're tired of carrying these white guys. You better deliver for us. And uh, the, the fact that she's on the ticket can help bring the base together. But for the Republicans, and Trump in particular, he's using it to consolidate a base that was in part drifting away from him, Scott. The the uh, suburban women were drifting away massively, older men, some younger evangelicals. He's going to try to use the appointment uh, to this position of somebody who's a black woman by her own self-identification. He's going to use this, and he's already started, to try to bring back those who are straying away, including even some younger evangelicals, by and you've already seen it if, if you've followed his rhetoric. Suburban women, are go- housewives are going to vote for me. We're going to stop putting uh, low-cost housing there. Basically, the racial appeal that is not subtle in, at all. Remember, he came down the escalator announcing his candidacy, warning about rapists, and you know, in this case it was Mexicans. But creating fear of the other is a mainstay of his campaign. And this particular nomination gives him a, a foil to try to reconsolidate his own base. Uh, considering where we are with COVID-19, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, George Floyd, all of that, uh, if he tries to make this racial in any way, won't that backfire? That remains to be seen in the voting. Uh, there's a couple more things to consider. Uh, one is the party base for the Democrats may be more energized because there was a strong implication by leaders of the black community that, oh, of course, we support Biden. He's always been there for us, but we'll support him even more in key places and with more enthusiasm. We might be able to bring in more electoral votes. So there, there's that side of it. But the other side is, can they vote? Uh, the Republicans are countering vigorously uh, with uh, the help, perhaps, of, of key institutions in America of basically suppressing the vote. And this is a long-standing practice, but will this energized base 
actually be able to get to the to the polls, and in this case, vote by mail, because the post office is now being undermined by by choice by the Trump administration and so forth. So uh, elections are won by people who show up to vote, and the fact that the Democrats may be more energized now can be countered by the previous gerrymandering, but also increasing voter suppression. Uh, there's been rumor, and I mean, he's uh, Biden has even mentioned this that he, you know, he knows that he's getting on in age. Uh, there's speculation he may step down before the term if his if his health uh, requires him to do so. Do you think uh, the Trump campaign will use this to say, hey, it's not Biden that's going to be president; it's going to be her? Yes, and then and then force the attack on is. the VP. Exactly. I mean, the, the scaremongering over having a woman, so the misogyny will be there, but also a woman of color will be highly, uh, I, I was going to say it's a subtext, but it, it might be a part of the meta text of the campaign. Joe Biden may also, uh, the speculation, because he said he sees himself as transitional, may take the office and hold it, and then in four years decline to run for a second term at age 81. I, I'm not at all convinced by any of these arguments. Uh, I'd be more concerned whether COVID or some other um, act of uh, Mother Nature may intervene with these two presidential candidates, both of whom are in their 70s. But uh, how can I put this gently, Scott? Every day that goes by, the more I appreciate the fact that age Mm. brings experience. Yeah. And Biden has been trying to become president for a very long time. I wouldn't underestimate uh, his desire to be a transformational, not just a restorative, you know, I'll bring back decency is at the core of his campaign. I'll bring back decency to America. I'll bring back normality to America. Uh, Trump fatigue on both sides of the, you know, both Republicans and Democrats. I'll bring all that back. But he is prepared, I think, and he may have a good working partner here uh, with Kamala Harris to try to really be a, transform- a transformational president. This is his shot if he gets elected, and that's uh, part of the consideration. For a country that, say, as multicultural as Canada, this may seem obvious. This may seem like what this is exactly what the United States needs right now, politics aside, just the characters involved. Is America ready for this? Uh, or has Barack Obama and his election put that debate behind us? You talked about decency. Uh, you know, politics aside, is that not the sale here? Uh, I don't think Barack Obama's election has put anything to rest. There was a lot of talk about America being post-racial, uh, followed by <laughs> Donald Trump's wiping up the Republican uh, primary process and then storming to the presidency on, on really an explicitly racial um, campaign. I think there's something else we should consider, and that's uh, now that Kamala Harris is the vice presidential choice and it's known, what does this mean for Mike Pence? Uh, we have a situation where in the past, a losing, a, a candidate who was running a campaign that was heading toward loss has decided to shake up the campaign by doing something really radical in the case of putting Geraldine Ferraro on the ticket or Sarah Palin on the ticket. Yep. Those were meant to shake up a losing campaign or campaign that needed shaking up. Right now, that's the Republican Party's position. Trump is on a glide path to loss at the moment. Will Mike Pence, and everybody's speculating, won't it be fun to watch Kamala Harris take on Pence in the 
in the uh, vice presidential debate, and uh, there's a lot of uh, contrast there saying Pence should be worried. But a, a bigger worry for him might be is whether he'll even stay on the ticket. I'm not suggesting I have inside information on this. But earlier on, what I was speculating privately and others, apparently Trump has speculated on uh, uh, among his inner circle, why don't we get rid of Pence and put Nikki Haley on the ticket? Mm. Now, if you have a woman of South Asian background and a great campaigner in Kamala Harris, you could have another woman with a South Asian background for the Republicans. And wouldn't that be interesting? I, I happen to be an Asian study specialist, so it's particularly interesting. But there's also Mike Pompeo, who's clearly got presidential ambitions. Uh, so either of those replacing Pence would uh, shake up the field. We don't know to what effect. That being said, Elliot, and, you know, it certainly would make it more interesting, but, man, we're awful close to the U.S. election. Could you do that now? I mean, can you honestly see Pence being replaced with the new vice president? And since this is happening, uh, you know, in the wake of, of Kamala Harris's uh, appointment to be the, the vice presidential candidate for the Democrats, could this not all backfire? It looks like you're doing this. It's tit for tat. Yes, the um, a couple of things there. First of all, I think Mike Pence technically is already the nominee of the party. That is, I think he, when the primaries were held, I think it wasn't just Trump on the ticket. I suspect uh, that it was Trump-Pence and that he's the official nominee of the party. You'd have to change the party rules to, uh, <laughs> to uh, but I think Trump's in position to master that party and he could do so if he wanted. Is it too late? Actually, early voting starts uh, end of September. Uh, people have pointed out one day after the vice presidential debate so it may be late in the season, but no, I, I don't think this race is over. I think the the glide path to victory that Biden is on right now is certainly promising. And one of the things about Kamala Harris that's being speculated upon is, can she help in the down ticket ballots? That is, not only for the presidency, but can her her various types of appeal help bring in uh, the, the Senate and help in the House and maybe help in some of the governorship's races. So can she help the Democratic Party have a clean sweep uh, across the board? And that's one of her potential strengths. But I wouldn't count this uh, this race as over by any means. Uh, Vice President Pence was Trump's go-to guy for COVID-19. What does it say if he is replaced in the uh, for the candidacy of the vice president? Um what can you say about a country where a thousand people a day are dying and more? That 160,000 plus have died, and it's not even in the headlines. That the distraction that Trump is able to create, and now we're talking also about this and other things. We are in the midst of a pandemic that is affecting the countryside across America. It's affecting red states across America, and the president who has said that he's leaving it to Pence. Pence has pretty well disappeared, I think, in terms of being the public voice or public face or showing any leadership in this issue. Uh, in fact, going back to the speculation, Pence could be a good fall guy if the Republicans want to say, uh, you know, we're sorry this got out of hand and it's all Pence's fault. So yes. one reason to replace him could be to let him carry the can. All that speculation. What we have in America is a terrible pandemic, and by the way, August 21st is coming for us. That's the time for the renewal of mm. Canada-U.S. border closure. Right now, Americans are forbidden to travel to Europe. Europe says, don't come. Canadians, 85%, say we love Americans maybe or not, but they can't come here. 
that border issue could uh, suddenly loom large on, on our side. We remember uh, the first uh, campaign for Donald Trump and his divisiveness, his aggressiveness, uh, just the way he handled himself. Considering we've been through COVID-19, will that fly again? Can he run that same campaign of divisiveness? Because it appears we have a united ticket versus a divisive ticket as we're in the middle of a crisis. Well, the Republican Party is united. Uh, Something like 84. Five ninety percent of the party is behind their leader, and that hasn't wavered. Some younger evangelicals may have drifted off and so forth, but the party is Trump's party, uh, no matter what happens to Pence. So they, that is a united party, perhaps even more than the Democrats, who still have the issue of the Bernie's, Bernie bros and progressives, and Democrats always seem to want purity over power, and the Republicans have a focus on power over purity, so certainly in this age. Will this fly? Why did it fly so well last time? A campaign that was clearly aimed at um, racial overtones or undertones, uh, it was, it, that was a, a core issue. Immigration was really about race as well. I will protect you. I will keep you safe. I am the one. I will take on China now, and I'm better at it than and Biden, that's going to be one part of the campaign. Uh, I'm the one that America needs. I don't think he's talking anymore about being a great deal maker, <laughs> given what we see in the U.S. Congress right now. But um, his appeal should not be underestimated uh, at a time of uh, depression, really. We have a COVID recession, uh, should not be overlooked. Huge dislocations in America. Where will they look for comfort? Where will they lo- look for leadership? And that's the that's the issue of the election. Uh, what are your thoughts on this whole Nikki Haley theory happening? I mean, you know, again, as I mentioned, it seems odd to do that so close to the election. That being said, this wouldn't be the first uh, person that, that Donald Trump has thrown under a bus who's that's a major sure. player in his in his uh, circles. So is this a, a viable option, do you think, and, oh, and possibly I, the only the, option for Trump? I'm, I'm one of those who have been floating this for a while. Uh, remember, when she resigned... Uh, she was one of the few successful Trump appointees. She left on her own timetable. She left under her own volition. She was a highly successful um, representative uh, of the Trump administration at the United Nations, where she was ambassador. She's been a governor. She knows how to govern. And she's a woman of color in South Carolina. Um, uh, so she, she's, And she always uh, appears with a cross uh, around her neck. So she's, she's not to be underestimated. But remember, when she... When she announced that she was resigning, she went way out of her way to say, I want to put down any rumors that I'm resigning to run against Trump in the primary. I will not oppose Trump in the primary. There was already speculation about her potential. I have no idea how serious this uh, this idea was. I'm helping to float, but I'm not the only one. I have no idea how uh, how likely it is. As you pointed out, time is short. Mike Pompeo is also not to be underestimated as possibly strengthening a failing ticket. Uh, what would be the deadline for such an action? The convention, which is coming up the end of this month. Yeah. So we could see something as early, yeah. a, a, as, early as a month ahead of the election, a change. Well, by the end of August, actually. Yeah. And then we have, you know, September, then October, then early Considering. November. Considering the uh, all the attention that Harris is getting right now, it does, is this his only hope? I mean, how does he rally against 
uh, this ticket, other than, again, inflaming the base, which seems to be getting smaller. Uh, you know, again, uh, with all of these movements post-COVID-19, uh, can he sell the same ticket? Can he sell the same, the same show? Well, one, yes. I mean, he will certainly make that effort, and clearly his base is uh, receptive to it. Uh, and can he reclaim? That's what I, can he reclaim those that are drifting away from that message at a time when national turmoil is is uh, in cities big and small over racial injustice? So I think there's um, there's two things to keep in mind there. When I've said that his base, the Republican Party, is strongly behind him, there's fewer people now saying they're Republican. So there's fewer Americans who identify as Republican than before. Also. One of the things that I've been trying to monitor, and it's hard to do, will the 2018 surge that the Democrats put on continue to surge as we approach November 3rd? And a lot of that can be determined on the uh, number of people signing up to vote. That is, voting registration is something to keep an eye on, although, of course, you don't know when they register how they're going to vote. But an increase in 2018, a huge increase in the number of people saying I plan to vote was a precursor to the Democrats flipping the House. And uh, the Senate, uh, incidentally, is also up for, uh, up for grabs this time. It wasn't supposed to be, but looks like the Democrats have a chance there. We don't know at the moment if events will intervene of some kind or another to change the trajectory of this race. But the trajectory right now is, is in a Biden-Kamala Harris ticket. Uh, we've only got a couple of seconds left. Would there be Republicans within the party that are pushing for this change in VP in order to boost Trump's chances? If so, we're, we haven't seen them. I haven't heard them. It's not at all impossible. And it's, uh, if, if it's happening, it's being kept very, very quiet. Hmm. And I'm not sure Pence is sleeping well at night these days. <laughs> I, I don't know. He looks like he's asleep all the time to me. Uh, Elliot Tepper has been with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. Elliot, always fascinating. Thank you so much for the time. Be well. Uh, thank you. Uh, be well to everybody who's listening. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. We've certainly known how COVID-19 has changed the way we live. Uh, many wondering what the new norm or sorry, when we will get back to normal. Uh, others are saying, forget that. <laughs> there is no normal. It's a new normal. And the search for a vaccination uh, is uh, front and center, as most are hoping that will get us back to some sort of sense of, nor- of normalcy. Russia is now the first country to approve a coronavirus vaccine. The move is being met with skepticism and concern from the scientific community in Russia and across the globe. Uh, President uh, Putin, however, has said that the vaccination, the vaccine, uh, underwent the necessary tests and were shown to provide lasting immunity to the to the virus, although Russian authorities have offered no proof to back up claims and safety of its effectiveness, uh, safety or effectiveness, rather. To talk more about all of this, John Colarusso is with us, Ph.D., professor of anthropology, linguistics and language, an expert on Russia from McMaster University. And he is with us now. John, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, I'm doing pretty well, Scott. Thank you. All right. Uh, U.S. officials uh, obviously uh, reported a while ago, a few weeks ago, that uh, there had been a, a hack uh, into uh, various uh, agencies uh, and such that were working on a COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, is this one of the reasons that uh, Russia has got to the post first? Well, I think that its actual uh, stage of development is probably similar to that of some other uh, countries and companies and all that are trying to 
develop vaccines. I think the the reason it's been announced as though it's ready to go and it's not uh, is that it fits in perfectly with uh, Vladimir Putin's um, uh, central core theme for uh, justifying his government, uh, and that is that uh, if you adhere to the group and have the group follow the leader, uh, you'll be taken care of. And such an autocratic system is far superior to a system, say, in which the individual dominates in all regards, permissivity is, is widespread. And, of course, look at the United States, and they blew it, you know, that, that kind yeah. of contrast. Um, so Russia is succeeding, and the West is, is not. And that, that's the, the message he's trying to get across, and he's using the vaccine uh, to that end. Uh, just as he earlier um, used some advanced weapon claims, uh, you know, hypersonic uh, right. guide body and that kind of stuff. Um, and this, this is really, I think, a crucial kind of justification, ideological justification for his government and uh, the uh, patterns that he's imposed on Russia in the last 20 years. So obviously uh, this vaccine is available now because uh, there's three stages of testing from what I've understand from what I understand and the last one being a mass test and that's what Russian uh, Russian officials have avoided they've just gone straight to uh, straight to production with this I, I guess uh, that being said did they develop this or did they steal what information they have do we know uh, well it's, I think it's Galia uh, is the name of the company. It's a Moscow-based vaccine manufacturer that has um, been producing a number of vaccines for, for years now. So it's not clear to me that things have been stolen. Maybe they have. Um, it's, it's conceivable, and perhaps this, this helped. Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, the vaccine is called Sputnik V. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and just today... That means it's, I guess that means it's out of this world? Something like it's in orbit. Yeah. It's yeah, yeah. Uh, well, Sputnik occupies a, a kind of crucial emblematic role in Russian identity and, and, and memory as being the first uh, real embarrassment imposed upon the West by by Russian technology. Um, and maybe there was stuff stolen then, too. I mean, the, the, the hydrogen bomb and all that goes back even farther, but that was stolen. Um so uh, I don't know if this was stolen or not. My feeling is that maybe Gamalea is the name of the company. Um, and just today, they've started wider testing. Apparently, they tested 76 people, according to an article on the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Today, they're starting 2,000 people over a variety of countries, oddly enough, including places like Mexico uh, and Saudi Arabia. It's very strange. So there's a kind of a web of cooperation going on here that we, we just now have learned about. And then they're targeting January 1st for, for major release and, and use. Uh, so in a way, Putin's announcement is, is more sort of fanfare than it is uh, actually accurate substance. So what are the political ramifications of Russia being the first, or certainly that perception that they're the first, even, with, even whether the testing's been done or not? Uh, what does Putin and his government stand to gain from this, both at home and internationally? Well, I think first at home, there's going to be money flowing into to, uh, Gamalaya, um, and uh, people will, will buy a vaccine if it proves to be effective. Uh, I think that there is a legitimate basis 
for for uh, the debate between an autocratic society and its benefits for the group that trickled out to the individual, individual always subordinated to the group, and a society in which the group, the independence and autonomy of the individual is primary. And um, so I do think that there is a, a serious basis for an ideological standoff here between the East and the West, or Russia, China, and then uh, EU and, and North America. Um, no. The World Health Organization, the World Health Organization, John, uh, has said that hopefully everyone, once this research becomes uh, available, will share the information on the vaccine. Are we going to hear anything about this vaccine? Will this any of this information be shared? It seems even China at some point does that. Yes, uh, there is this overriding humanitarian uh, uh, need to to curtail the number of deaths and the number of illnesses. Uh, with very profound financial uh, implications as well for economies all over the planet. Uh, so sharing in some way is, in the long run, to everyone's benefit. It will help everyone's economy and everyone's population and mindset. Whether that actually happens or not, um, it will depend upon the traditions of particular countries, and Russia is not a great one for a track record of sharing. Um so it's, it's it remains to be seen. I certainly hope how do, how do you think, John? How do you think uh, China or the United States is are, are reacting to this? Well, you know, it's curious. I was just looking at the news. I don't see anything on CNN about it at all. I had to go digging uh, for the for the thing. Um, I think that they will basically try to sort of dismiss it. Their response to what little there has been has been more or less critical. Uh, of of um, the minuscule test run, seventy six people. It's, it's like nothing. Um, what about Russia? Well, I mean the response. I mean, sorry, to, China. What about China? How would they okay. react to this? I, I also don't know. I would think that they have a, an inherent um, geographical rivalry with with Russia as polar poor elements of the Eurasian continent in some way. I mean, right now there's a convenient sort of short-term uh, sense of alignment of interest and that sort of stuff, but I don't think that is really um, the, the long-lasting and fundamental nature of the relationship between those two nations. And I think this virus and the, virus and the efforts in China to produce viruses, I mean, this is becoming kind of a, uh, like a space race. But, um, mm. And I think that we may see in the next month or so um, more claims coming forward and more challenges as to veracity or effectiveness and more rivalry um, because the stakes of this are very high. John Colarusso is with us, Ph.D., professor of anthropology, linguistics and languages and an expert on Russia at McMaster University. John, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Yeah, stay well, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, we've been talking about uh, Russia's announcement of a vaccine for the COVID-19 uh, coronavirus. Uh, it's raising concerns and eyebrows not only there but here uh, in regard to uh, whether this has been properly tested, how they got here so quickly, and usually what that means is uh, in the majority of this time in order to develop a vaccine is not actually the development, it's the testing to make sure that it is safe. 
Uh, to talk more, more about all of this, uh, Brian Dixon, professor at the University of Waterloo, uh, Department of Biology, and is currently involved in research on COVID-19 antibody testing methods and is with us now. Brian, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Good afternoon, Scott. So your thoughts on the announcement of this Russian vaccine, are they ahead of the game? Is this all due to lack of proper testing? Uh, they're not really ahead of the game. Um, they're in phase one of the trials, and they're jumping to vaccinating volunteers. Um, in Canada, we have four vaccines that are also in uh, phase one or, or, or further trials. I think they're just getting volunteers to get vaccinated early. So what does this say? What sort of message does this send? Um, is, is this false hope in some way? Um, it's not what we would normally do. I will tell you that. It is a little bit risky. Um, generally, there's three phases to trials. One is to see if the vaccine has any serious negative effects if you inject it into people. One is to see if it has any effect at all um, in terms of immune response. And then the third is when you see if it actually affects the disease or if it has side effects. And they're sort of skipping that, but side effects are the part that you really worry about with vaccines. There are cases where people get allergic reactions to the vaccine, or if you have too strong of an immune response, too high of a fever, and it causes problems. That's the part that takes a long time when you're normally developing a vaccine, and they're kind of getting these volunteers to, to take it to test that early. Why do this? Is it worth it? Is is the race to ha- be the first to come up with a vaccine? Like you said, there's lots of different people, uh, companies, uh, nations and such that are at various uh, stages of all of this. Why do this now? Is uh, it well, worth the I risk? Uh, well, the risk is that their vaccine is going to have wider scale adverse effects than is normal. So, for example, for the vaccines that we usually use for other things like measles or the flu, they aim for one in a hundred thousand serious effects like an overly swollen arm or headaches or diarrhea um, but that that has been calibrated very carefully when you're making the vaccine if they get a much higher rate of side effects they're not only going to create problems for the people who take it but they're I think going to give vac- the vaccine sort of a bad name and make people worry that they're going to get side effects from these vaccines at a much more frequent rate and it could be detrimental I think it's best to take it easy and, and do it in the correct order is this like a space race? We've had somebody actually refer to it as that. It could well be. I mean, and that's the problem. I'm a scientist. I'm not really up on politics, but national pride is involved, and it does make people do things that perhaps they shouldn't. But in this case, I think it's public health, so I think you shouldn't be space racing. Uh, will anyone else buy this? I mean, we've certainly heard, as you said, various companies are in various stages of this. Uh, some nations, some countries have already purchased orders before these are available, knowing that eventually uh, they will be. Would any other nation or country buy this without, you know, realizing that there isn't hasn't been proper testing done? Would they just not wait and and get something that has the consensus of everyone? I would say not, because mostly in in most countries you have to have government approval for. A vaccine and it has to go through all of the stages of testing. If this vaccine has not undergone the proper protocol for testing, it will not be approved and you will not be able to get it. We'll have to wait for the ones that are done correctly. Are you concerned that this will turn people off of vaccinations if in fact something does go wrong here? It, it is a worry. I mean, vaccine hesitancy is a problem to start with and it is a concern that if this looks doesn't go well, people may be more hesitant to take the vaccine. Uh, Russia's history with this sort of thing, do they have a handle on this? Are they on the cutting edge of developing vaccines? 
the technology they're using is the same as the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. It's actually the same as the the CanSino vaccine that one company in Canada is working on. It's it's a similar technology. So they're they're on the edge of the technology. But I think the thing is that this type of vaccine is not common and has not been widely used before. So I think it is something that needs to be done a little bit more cautiously to make sure it's going to work. Uh, the World Health Organization has talked a lot about when, you know, when all of this research is being done, that everybody shares the information so there's no duplication and we can get to the results or get to the end of all of this quicker. Um, that being said, will Russia share any of this information? Do you expect them to? Does the world community expect them to? Well, I would say scientists, we expect to share it widely with everyone on the planet. But as I said, there's science and then there's politics. So I don't know if they will, but they should. What are your thoughts initially when you hear of them and the commotion around this vaccine? Is this more hype than anything or is there something to be concerned about here? Well, I think there is something to be concerned about, at least from a from a very human level. You have to be concerned about the volunteers that are getting it. And as I said, you have to be concerned about the uh, the publicity of a virus if it doesn't work well. So I think it could have effects worldwide. It, it is concerning. We have been doing vaccines for an awful long time now. Is is What could happen? I mean, is the danger... Uh, is the danger justified or, uh, again, is, is this just an extra step for safety? Well, no, I think it is justified. I mean, there are cases where vaccines have not been thought out very well and you do get um, extra cases of sore arms. You do get the Kawasaki disease. Uh, we're having some technical issues here. Thank you to Brian Dixon, professor at the University of Waterloo. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, we certainly have talked uh, a lot on this show of late, uh, especially in a COVID-19 world, about China and Canada and the relations of. Yesterday, the Canada-China Relations Committee began hearings. Gloria Fung of Canada-Hong Kong Link testified to the committee describing an urgent need to can- uh, for Canada to help the people of Hong Kong and sanction Chinese officials. On Sunday, Canada-Hong Kong Link, which connects 16 organizations, 16 Canadian organizations advocating for Hong Kong, will be organizing demonstrations to echo the proposal brought before the committee. To talk more about all of this, President of Canada-Hong Kong Link, Gloria Fung, and she is with us now. Gloria, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thank you very much, Scott. Thank you for having me today. Uh, tell us about the Canada-China committee hearings that you testified at uh, yesterday. Uh, what was the mood? It seems we're a little late to this table for this discussion. What are your thoughts? I think it's uh, it's better to have it than uh, not having it. Uh, but it's a very good opportunity for all stakeholders on uh, the Hong Kong issue to come together to voice our, our common concerns and grave concerns about uh, the situation developing in Hong Kong. And at the same time, all of us uh, being invited to testify before the special committee also call for immediate action of a Canadian government uh, to save life in Hong Kong. And uh, in my testimony, I have expressed that uh, there has been a mass arrest of dissidents and media people in Hong Kong under the new security law. And uh, it also claims, this law also claims extraterritorial jurisdiction. That means anyone anywhere on this planet who are critical towards the Chinese and Hong Kong policies could be considered a criminal under this new law, including you and me. And therefore, it is 
what Hong Kong is fighting is a global battle to preserve freedom, human rights, rule of law. Uh, and the Communist Party of China is a global threat to, uh, you know, uh, global democracy. And uh, we, in my testimony, I asked for our government to three, at three actions, to take three actions. Number one, uh, to implement the safe harbor program to provide protection to Hong Kong people under imminent risk of political persecution. And time is running out. Every day, there are more people being arrested and uh, the, they could be subject to lifelong imprisonment. And uh, number two, uh, our government should invoke the Maniski law to sanction Chinese and Hong Kong officials violating human rights. And three, uh, to introduce legislation to combat foreign interference in Can- Canadian politics and suppression of freedom here on Canadian soil. So uh, I hope this time our government will listen to us and take concrete action because all the time, I think we have been giving lip service without any action at all. And it's way past time for Canadian government to show leadership on the world stage. Uh, you t- your number one point was in regard to safe harbor for those that want out. Is that still possible? We're understanding that's becoming more and more difficult to do. Yes. Uh, and that's why I say time is running out. Uh, because for some of the high-profile uh, Hong Kong um, outspoken activists as well as community leaders. Their passports have already been confiscated by Hong Kong police. And therefore, for these people, it really takes an international collaboration in Hong Kong uh, to get them out if they are, uh, you know, going to be arrested. But for a lot of other activists uh, who are equal, uh, under equal risk of uh, political persecution. They still have their passport. And therefore, uh, we need to take a timely uh, action to provide them, uh, to allow them to come to Canada and provide them uh, with the right to stay here to save their life. You also mentioned uh, something to prevent foreign interference uh, once uh, Chinese Canadians, once, Cana- once, once Chinese have landed in Canada. Talk a little bit about that, um, because many are wondering why uh, Chinese Canadians don't speak up against Chinese nationals. That being said, uh, there's influence there, isn't there? They are being pressured to toe the line. Is that accurate? That is absolutely accurate. Uh, I think a lot of Canadians, including our politicians, don't really understand how sophisticated uh, the Chinese Communist uh, Party is at work on Canadian soil. Actually, over the past three decades, I have witnessed the Chinese embassy and the agents building up a great number of United Front organizations in Canada, advocating the official line on Canadian soil. They have also taken ownership and also exerted uh, indirect uh, pressure on local media uh, to silence them and or to manipulate their uh, stories about China and Hong Kong. And uh, over the last one year, when the Hong Kong uh, issue is developing, uh, we have been receiving overwhelming support from across Canada towards Hong Kong. And uh, uh, 
many of the Chinese language media have been pressured by the Chinese embassy to cut down uh, their report on Hong Kong. And uh, I personally have even been blacklisted by some Chinese language media that uh, they won't interview with me. It shows how far and why the Chinese uh, Communist Party's uh, influence is at work uh, in Canada. And uh, therefore, we've talked about. uh, And then at the same time, our rallies across Canada have also been interfered by international mainland Chinese students and uh, United Front organizations supporting the the Chinese uh, embassy. Uh, They interfere with our rallies, they block our way, they sang uh, their Chinese anthem and boo at us when we sang uh, Old Canada. So I think uh, we we should show zero tolerance to this kind of uh, foreign uh, interference when we exercise our uh, freedom of expression, right to freedom of expression on Canadian soil. And therefore, legislation to combat this kind of foreign interference is of utmost importance. Talk a little bit more about the United Front and how persistent are they? How how much control do they have over Chinese Canadians? Uh, you mean the pro-China one, right? Yes, yeah, the United Front. Uh, yes, I think uh, they they claim that they represent uh, Chinese Canadian here, but actually they don't because we have a lot of organizations supporting our um, advocacy work. Say, for instance, we are circulating a joint statement uh, to uh, advocate, right, to support our two demands being expressed uh, yesterday in my testimony. And just within one day, just yesterday, we have received signatories from 23 uh, uh, Canadian organizations, and the number is still growing. And uh, the other thing is, uh, I think it is very important for Canadian civil society organizations, as well as our government, to realize what is going on, right? To raise awareness towards this kind of uh, foreign interference and to take uh, immediate action to legislate, uh, you know, a new legislature to combat this. Otherwise, we don't have the necessary tool to take action to stop it. Uh, we have to make sure here that we're we're making clear that we are talking about China and the communist of uh, the Chinese Communist Party, not necessarily Canadian Chinese. How do uh, how do Canadians make sure they can differentiate between these two groups here? Uh, because obviously the nationals uh, the nationalists are trying to 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 sway opinion uh, in regard to what the Canadian uh, Chinese Canadians are saying. So how do we make sure this stays on issue and doesn't come and doesn't become something that's you know that turns people against Chinese Canadians? How do we make sure that doesn't happen? I think uh, a few steps of that, you know, need to be taken. Number one, we need to raise awareness uh, in Canada about, you know, uh, what the Chinese Communist Party is doing. And uh, already a lot of, uh, you know, some scholars like uh, Professor Charles Burton and uh, also a lot of media people and as well as civil society organizations like ours at Canada Hong Kong Link. Uh, we have been uh, talking a lot, analyzing a lot about, you know, how the shop power operation 
of China has been at work in Canada. But we need to uh, further do more work uh, to raise awareness, uh, particularly within the parliament, so that uh, all our federal parties do understand what is going on, uh, so that uh, we won't uh, misunderstand uh, what the pro-China camp uh, talks about is is representative of our community voice. And number two, uh, it also uh, we need to uh, come up with corresponding legislation to combat uh, foreign interference. Say, for instance, if at any rally, if there's interference from such groups, uh, particularly the international mainland Chinese students, we need to take action. We also need to take action about uh, anonymous donation to some of the candidates at three levels of government elections to stop foreign interference on Canadian politics. We also need to expose uh, the undue influence of Chinese uh, Communist Party on Canadian media. When that, uh, uh, th- probably through some of the advertisers or even directly uh, threatening some of our media organizations. I think uh, all these need to be exposed so that people understand what is going on. Uh, Obviously, COVID-19 has shown the world how dependent we have been on China. Uh, Is China too interwoven into the Canadian landscape, whether it's the economy, whether it's politics, whether it's healthcare, whether it's uh, the educational system? Are they too interwoven now to turn back? Is it too late? Uh, It's never too late. Uh, If we take immediate action and start to combat it from all aspects of our society, uh, the hope is still there for us to build up a strong enough awareness and at the same time corresponding policies to combat it. I think based on our experience uh, during the coronavirus pandemic, you know, the, the, what is going on around the world, particularly in Canada, has already taught us a very important lesson. We cannot trust China, particularly the Chinese Commerce Party. Uh, they have been manipulating data. They have been hiding information uh, from us, causing the present global coronavirus pandemic. Therefore, it's about time for us to hold Chinese officials accountable for what they have done to the world. And uh, uh, I think now the interference is actually uh, taking place in all aspects of our society, from political arena, community, to media. And it is also happening in the academic circle. A lot of anonymous uh, donations have been given to universities to manipulate and change the direction of their research, particularly those in connection with IT uh, development. And a lot of our intellectual uh, properties developed in Canada have been registered patent rights by China outside Canada. And even the surveillance uh, system uh, in China, its core technology comes from Canada as well. So it shows that uh, our government has not been doing enough to uh, scrutinize uh, what is going on in Canada. And we need to do it together with our government. We need to pressure our government to shape them up so that they will know, uh, uh, they will take immediate action to protect Canadian interests and security. 
Uh, many have said that one of the reasons Canada has has uh, been uh, uh, slow to this discussion is because of the two Michaels that are imprisoned in China. Is is that enough to 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 do nothing? Is that enough to take this position? Uh, how concerned uh, if we do uh, add sanctions and such that that will threaten the two Michaels? I think uh, all these years uh, uh, under the present uh, Canadian government, I think we have been taking a very weak uh, policy towards China. And if that is effective, then the two Michaels should have long been released, right? Because our government is not really doing anything, has not been doing anything apart from providing lip service by issuing a statement. Uh, with other allies showing our grave concern towards what is going on in China and Hong Kong. So our silent diplomacy has proven to be ineffective. Uh, and it is time for us to work closely with our international allies, such as the Five Eyes Network, to come up with a, a collective strategy, strong policy towards China. And now U.S. has already announced uh, 11 Hong Kong and Chinese officials to be sanctioned. And I think it is also time for Canada to follow, uh, to do the same uh, in collaboration with our Five Eye allies. And I understand that Australia, New Zealand, UK are also, you know, uh, discussing about this. So I think it would be good for uh, Canada to, to, to take action uh, right away. Being weak in foreign policy does not mean that we will be able to gain, uh, to, to, to get any gains in our negotiation with China. Gloria Fung has been with us, President of Canada Hong Kong Link, and has testified at the Canada-China Relations Committee hearings uh, in regard to uh, the future policy and stance when it comes to China. Gloria, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you very much. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.